Good morning. I invite you to turn with me in God's Word to the book of Colossians, chapter 4. Again, that is the book of Colossians, chapter 4. On, on Friday evening, I made a statement here that I, I want to repeat and unpack uh, briefly just to set the stage for what we're going to consider this morning. The statement was this, the Bible contains blood. Uh, most of you, many of you were here Friday evening, and you might remember that. The Bible contains blood. Uh, blood circulates through every book from Genesis to Revelation. Blood pumps through every chapter, large and small. And blood surges through every verse, familiar and obscure. Why? Why is there so much emphasis on blood in the Bible? The answer is simply this. The Bible's principal theme is Christ makes peace by the blood of his cross. That is scripture's principal theme. Christ makes peace by the blood of his cross. Uh, that is startling. And that is uh, simply staggering. I want to read a series of sentences, brief, curt sentences. Uh, meditate on these. I pray the Spirit of God presses them deep within. Let me begin with the following. The infinite became finite. Think on that. The infinite became finite. The Creator became a creature. The one who made all things was born of a woman. The one whom the heavens cannot contain was contained in the narrow womb of a woman. The bread of life was hungry. The water of life was thirsty. The greatest rest was weary. The highest joy was sorrowful, and the deepest love was hated. Fury, fury and favor were manifested in the blood of his cross. Hate and love were reconciled by the blood of his cross. Infinite justice was satisfied, and infinite mercy was secured through the blood of of his cross. Now, this is equally startling and staggering. As Christians, we are enriched because of his poverty. We are filled because of his emptiness. We are exalted because of his disgrace. We are healed because of his wounds. We are comforted because of his pain. And we are justified because of his condemnation. Christ makes peace by, through, the blood of his cross, the crucifixion, a staggering truth. Today we're going to consider an equally staggering truth, namely, Christ's resurrection. 
And to that end, I have invited you to turn to Colossians chapter 4, where I want to read two verses, namely 3 and 4. And listen closely to what the Apostle Paul writes here. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Now I'm going to a pause for effect because I know exactly what you're thinking. What has that got to do with the resurrection? Stephen's read the wrong verses. How embarrassing for him. What's he going to do now to recover? No, they're the right verses. They're the verses I intended to write. And they read, and they, and they, they, they beg an obvious question. What does Paul de- Paul's declaration in these verses have to do with Christ's resurrection? Narrow in on the final statement he makes at the end, right at the end of verse 3. What does he declare? I am in prison, jail. In chapter 4, he is going to describe his imprisonment as chains. When you hear the word jail, when you hear the word prison, do not think of our prisons today. No. Think dark, damp, and dreary. Think filth, stench, and death. Think cold, hunger, and disease. Think physical decay, mental anguish, and emotional breakdown. I am in prison. You still don't see it, do you? What has this got to do with Christ's resurrection? Well, now I want to take you on a journey, very brief journey. We're going to make seven short stops along the way. The first stop is found in the book of Colossians, same book. Turn with me all the way back to chapter 1. And look at what Paul writes in verse 3. We always thank God. That's stop number 1. Stop number 2, same chapter, verse 12. What does he say? Giving thanks to the Father. Third stop, chapter 2, verse 7. And look at what he writes there at the very end of that verse. Again, that's chapter 2, verse 7, stop number 3, abounding in thanksgiving. Now skip over to chapter 3. Three very quick stops, beginning firstly in verse 15, right at the end, be thankful. Verse 16, right at the end, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Verse 17, again, right at the end of the verse, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Stop number seven, final stop, chapter four, verse two, what does Paul say? Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it. With thanksgiving. And so in our text in chapter 4, Paul declares, I am in 
prison. And yet, running like a current throughout this book, this letter which he wrote to the church in Colossae, is this spirit of what? Joyful thanksgiving. Obviously, Paul lives in the arena of thanksgiving. Now, you're still wondering. I hope you're still wondering. What has this got to do with Christ's resurrection? Let me try to answer that question with a series of additional questions. Why isn't Paul curled up in a corner bemoaning his chains? Why isn't Paul huddled under a blanket lamenting his imprisonment? Why isn't Paul lost in a world of self-pity? I'm abounding in thanksgiving. I'm always giving thanks. Thankfulness in my heart. The answer is Christ's resurrection. For the Apostle Paul, Christ's resurrection isn't merely a historical fact. It is a historical fact. He writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And so we celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ as an undeniable, unassailable, historical fact. I'm not going to give you a defense for it this morning. That has been done throughout the church's 2,000-year history on innumerable occasions. For me, when I think of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and I think of evidence for the resurrection, I immediately go to the disciples. And when I look at the disciples, I see two things which tell me, which indicate for me that Christ is indeed risen from the dead. The first thing is this, their amazing transformation. How do you explain these men? They're weak, they're feeble, they're fickle, just like you and me. Cowards to the core. And on the night in which Christ is betrayed, the disciples are running here, there, everywhere. The disciples are denying the Lord Jesus. The disciples are putting as much distance between him and them as they possibly can. How do we explain that within a relatively short period of time, days really, these same disciples are now proclaiming the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ before a hostile crowd. Oh, their amazing transformation. Secondly, when I look at the disciples, I behold their unwavering proclamation. They preached Christ risen from the dead. If Christ did not arise from the dead, Why did these men preach, not merely preach, but why were these men prepared to endure such spiteful opposition on account of what they were preaching? Why was it that these men were not only prepared to endure spiteful opposition on account of what they were preaching, but were actually prepared and willing to be martyred on behalf of what they were proclaiming? Oh, don't misunderstand me. Plenty of people in human history have died for something they thought was true, but actually wasn't. But that's not the case with the disciples. It's not something they thought was true, but actually wasn't. 
If Christ wasn't risen from the dead, that means they were actually proclaiming something they knew wasn't true. Who dies for something they know is a lie? Surely, at least one of them, when facing the executor's sword, surely when facing martyrdom, at least one of them would have reneged. Surely one of them would have denied everything they had proclaimed, everything they had lived under the threat of death. But no, we see this unwavering proclamation of the gospel. We see this unwavering proclamation, Christ is risen from the dead. And in the very example of the disciples, we see, and Paul believed it, that in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. But for the Apostle Paul, Christ's resurrection wasn't merely a historical fact. It was more than that. For the Apostle Paul, Christ's resurrection isn't merely, wasn't merely a theological truth. It is a theological truth. And so he writes, oh, we could go to many places, but he writes, for example, in his epistle to the Romans, chapter 1, verse 4, he, Christ, was declared, manifested, to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. And so when did the Father declare that Christ was indeed his son? Well, he declared it at his baptism, right? When he emerged from the Jordan River, having been baptized by the John, of John the Baptist, the dove descended, the Father's voice was heard, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He declared it at Christ's transfiguration, Right? Peter, John, James, they're there. Elijah, Moses, they're there. The cloud descends. There's this bright illumination, the Shekinah glory. And they hear this voice, this is my beloved son. But even eclipsing these events, the father declared Christ to be the son of God with power when? When he raised him from the dead. Oh, never forget this, friend. The resurrection, oh, the resurrection means many things. And praise God, the resurrection means many things to us, doesn't it? But of foremost importance, the resurrection means something to the Lord Jesus. It is the hour of his vindication. It is the hour of his vindication. You know what it means to vindicate, right? Somebody's wrongly accused of a crime they didn't commit. There they are languishing in prison, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 years, then all of a sudden... New evidence emerges, DNA testing, something like this, and they're exonerated. They are vindicated. They are proven to be innocent. And the Lord Jesus Christ lived a perfect life at Calvary's cross. He is numbered among the transgressors. Our sin is reckoned imputed to him. He becomes sin for us. But at the moment of his resurrection, the Father declares Christ to be the Son of God. He confirms his person. He confirms his innocence. Moreover, he confirms and declares his actual identity. Because throughout his ministry, the Lord Jesus made it clearly evident through the words he spoke and through the signs he performed that he was indeed the Son of God. And as he hangs between heaven and earth on Calvary's cross, he is ridiculed. He said he was the Son of God. Well, if he is the Son of God, let him come down from that cross and we will believe in him. And at the hour of his resurrection, 
his claim is vindicated. And so for the Apostle Paul and for us, the resurrection is a great theological truth. He was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. But for the Apostle Paul, Christ's resurrection isn't merely a theological truth. For the Apostle Paul, Christ's resurrection isn't merely a confessional truth, something to be confessed, something to be proclaimed. It is that, but it isn't merely that. And so in his preaching, as recorded in the book of Acts, chapter 17, verse 31, the Apostle Paul declared the following. Listen closely, intently to these words. God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man, it's Christ, whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And so Christ's resurrection is a confessional truth. There are really four components when it comes to Christ's exaltation. Component number one is his resurrection, his bodily resurrection. The tomb is empty. A second component in his exaltation is his ascension. He ascends to the right hand of the Father. The third component in Christ's exaltation is his heavenly session, or his present session right now, he is seated at the right hand of God. And the fourth part, the fourth component in Christ's exaltation is his return. And his return in judgment. And so God has appointed a day of judgment. God has marked a day of judgment. A day on which a man whom he has appointed, Christ Jesus, will judge all men and women, the living and the dead, according to righteousness, by a perfect standard of righteousness. And how do we know this to be true? How do we know that that day is coming? How do we know that that day is indeed marked in the mind of God? God has attested to it. How? By raising his son from the dead. And his resurrection inaugurated the exaltation of his son, the Lord Jesus. Resurrection, ascension, present session in the heavenlies right now at the right hand of the Father. And it will all culminate in the day of judgment. Oh, my friend, this is a confessional truth. This is something to be confessed. This is something to be proclaimed. We proclaim it, those of us who are Christians. We proclaim it, we celebrate it, we anticipate that coming day, the consummation of all things, the great resurrection from the dead, the final judgment, the new heavens, the new earth, the purging of the entire cosmos of sin. We look for it with great yearning and longing and we confess it. And it's a truth that not only do we confess by way of celebration, it is a truth we confess, proclaim, By way of evangelism, isn't it? It is a truth that we announce that Christ did not remain on the cross. Christ did not remain in the grave. Christ rose again. He was vindicated. He reigns right now. He's 
calling forth his people unto salvation to himself. And a day is appointed when he will return and he will judge the living and the dead. And so let me speak plainly. And let me speak boldly to any unbelievers here this day as to how Christ's resurrection is a confessional truth for you. Ponder these words. On that day, if you are found outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, on that day, if you are found having rejected the Lord Jesus, you are found having rejected his command to believe in the gospel and repent of your sin, you will find that your punishment will be your destruction. Not of your being, because your being is eternal, but of your bliss. Let me repeat that. Your punishment will be the destruction, not of your being, but of your bliss. These are horrendous thoughts, my friend. You will lose on that day whatever is pleasing and satisfying in this life. All that affords a little happiness. You will lose your possessions. They're not going with you. You will lose your family members. They're not going with you. You'll derive no comfort from them on that day of judgment. You will lose your friends. You will lose your hopes. You will lose your comforts. You will lose your delights. And far eclipsing, far eclipsing these material losses, on that day appointed by God, that day on which he will judge everyone according to his perfect standard of righteousness by his son, the Lord Jesus, uh, you will lose God. You will lose the only source of true happiness. This is the loss of all losses. It is a loss that no words can describe. It is a loss that no mind can conceive. Oh, hear this, friend. I beg you to hear this. How terrifying will it be to fall into the hands of God with nothing but your soul to bear his infinite anger. What will that be like? The greatness of any loss is measured by the value of what is lost. Agreed? The greatness of any loss is measured, determined by the value of what is lost. If God is incomparable, then the loss of God must be incomparable. If God is infinite, then the loss of God must be infinite. If God is incomprehensible, then the loss of God must, equally so, be incomprehensible. This is a confessional truth. Again, out of Acts 17, verse 31, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him, raising Christ from the dead. And so for the Apostle Paul, Christ's resurrection is a confessional truth. But it isn't merely a confessional truth. It isn't merely a historical fact. It isn't merely a theological truth. And it isn't merely a confessional truth. Here's what I want you to hear. For the Apostle Paul, Christ's resurrection is supremely a transforming reality. Did you get it? For the Apostle Paul, Christ's resurrection is supremely a transforming reality. Look with me 
still in the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verses which have been in the forefront of our minds, the center of our attention for five or six weeks now. And look at what Paul says, beginning Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Christ's resurrection is supremely a transforming reality. To be a Christian is to be one with Christ. Best biblical definition you can give of a Christian, a believer. It's a man, it's a woman, who is one with Christ. And that is what Paul describes for us here in these verses. He tells us, firstly, that we are one with Christ in his death as Christians. We have died with him. Look at what he says. He declares right, right there at the start of verse 3. For you have died. We are one with him in his crucifixion, in his death. Notice, secondly, not only are we one with him in his death by virtue of our union with him. And so the Holy Spirit has entered in. He has made us one with the Lord Jesus. And because we're one with him, his death is our death. We're one with him in his crucifixion. We have died with him. Equally true, we are one with him in his resurrection. And so we have been raised with him. Look at what he says at the outset of verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ. But it doesn't stop there. We're one with Christ, therefore we are one with him in his crucifixion. We are one with him in his resurrection. And we are one with him right now in his present session, his heavenly session. How do we know that? Return to verse 3. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And so right now, as Christians, we are seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. But it doesn't stop there. By virtue of our union with him, we have died with him, one with him in his crucifixion. Because of our union with him, we have been raised with him, one with him in his resurrection. Because we are one with him in union with him, we are now seated with him in the heavenly places at the right hand of God. It doesn't stop there. But because we are union with him, we are one with him in his promised return. Look at what Paul says at the end of verse 4. When Christ who is your life appears, oh, then also you will appear with him in glory. That's what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian is for the Holy Spirit to take hold of me, making me one with Christ, whereby I believe, I repent of my sin, and I'm trusting in the Lord Jesus as my Savior, wholly, entirely, completely, and securely. I am now one with him. Therefore, all that he has accomplished, all that he does is counted as mine. It's amazing truth. Startling, staggering truth that I am one with him in his death. 
Therefore, the judgment my sin deserves has been paid in full because I'm one with Christ and I have died with him as far as God is concerned. I have been raised up with him as far as God is concerned. And so I know that God is now pleased with me in Christ. I know God now accepts me and receives me in Christ. I'm now seated with Christ in the heavenly place. You think, well, you're crazy. What are you you're standing up there right behind the pulpit. No, positionally, I am seated with Christ in the heavenly places. I'm one with him. Therefore, all of those blessings, all of those privileges, all of those promises of which we read of in the Bible are mine. They are mine because Christ earned them for me. Christ paid for them. He purchased them upon Calvary's cross, and they are mine. I haven't entered into the full enjoyment of them yet. It's coming. I'm still living in this fallen world. I'm waiting, and my hope is fixed on his return, and I'm one with him in his return, so that when he who is my life appears, then I also will appear with him in glory. All of the privileges will be mine. All of the blessings, I will enter into the full enjoyment of them. All of the promises will be fulfilled. For the Apostle Paul, Christ's resurrection, yes, it is a historical truth. It's not merely that. Yes, it is a theological truth, but it's not merely that. Yes, it is certainly a confessional truth, but not merely that. Above all these, for the Apostle Paul, Christ's resurrection is a transforming reality. This is why Paul isn't curled up in a corner bemoaning his chains. Hmm. This is why Paul isn't huddled under a blanket lamenting his imprisonment. This is why Paul isn't lost in a world of self-pity. This is why Paul, even in the midst of dire conditions, even in the midst of real, painful anguish, he abounds in thanksgiving. I am in prison. And yet even Paul, as he languishes in the jail cell, he abounds in thanksgiving. Because for the Apostle Paul, Christ's resurrection is what? A transforming reality. He knows who he is in Christ. He knows where he is seated with Christ. He knows what Christ has purchased on his behalf. And he knows with absolute certainty that the day will come when the old will give way to the new. And the Apostle Paul will enter into the inheritance of his reward. Let me affirm three things as we draw our thoughts to a a conclusion. Let me affirm firstly. I'll return to the Apostle Paul's example in just a moment. But let me affirm firstly that when we think of Christ's resurrection, we have something here that uh, rescues us from apathy. This needs to be said, because we live in a very apathetic society. Christ's resurrection is something, it is a transforming reality that rescues us from apathy. It can give you a backache, a headache, insomnia, and chronic fatigue. Studies have shown it is linked to alcohol abuse and drug abuse. 
It has been associated with a host of other abuses, and millions suffer from it. What am I talking about? One of America's most serious health problems, boredom. Boredom. People are bored. Many people here this morning are they're bored. Just bored. Life is boring. And an apathy has set in. It's a fascinating study. The word boredom doesn't appear in the English language until the late 1700s. It's actually not even found in English literature until Charles Dickens uses it in 1852. It is a concept unknown to our forefathers, a concept that has only appeared in the last couple of centuries, and yet it plagues this generation. Boredom. Oh, my friend, if you are bored, if you are apathetic, if you are indifferent, Oh, you stand in great need of the transforming reality of Christ's resurrection. Fix your gaze upon the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Fix your gaze, yes, firstly, on what he accomplished at Calvary's cross. He made peace by the blood of his cross. And fix your gaze, secondly, now on an exalted Christ and upon a new heavens and a new earth that is coming. This transforming reality rescues us from apathy. Secondly, this transforming reality redeems us from idolatry. There is something great in your life. I don't know what it is. You do. There is something great in your life. What is it? What occupies your secret thoughts? Even 15 minutes ago when your mind just left the building and off you went. Somewhere. I know it happens. You think I'm naive? Off you went. Where did it go? Where do your secret thoughts go? Where do they end up? What stirs your strongest emotions? Is it God? Or is it pleasure? Success, beauty, sex, approval, control, performance, sports, wealth, popularity, fame, acceptance, power. If it is something other than God, you, my friend, are an idolater. You shall have no other gods before me. You do not love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You love something far greater in your mind, in your heart. You love something with a a passion more than God. And so you need something greater. You need something more substantial. You need something more meaningful. You need something more exciting. And you need something more exhilarating than sports, money, clothes, iPod, sex, lust, success, alcohol, or video games. You need something greater than fame, acceptance, performance, control, power, or popularity. You need a transforming reality. And that transforming reality is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thirdly, not only does it rescue us from apathy, not only does it redeem us from idolatry, It releases us from despondency. And this brings us back, my friends, to the Apostle Paul. Because of Christ's resurrection, Paul knew something better was coming. Many of us don't, many of us might profess that. But we certainly don't live in the light of it. Paul was convinced that something better was coming. Far too many of us live as though this world is all there is. Far too many of us live as if this life 
were all there? Is. But Paul was convinced of a far greater reality. Paul was convinced of a better world coming. He was convinced of a better life coming. And this released him from the chains of despondency. Johnny, what was her name? Johnny Erickson. You remember Tata Erickson? Do you remember that name? Do you remember her story? I jotted down a quote from one of her books here. Johnny Erickson Tata, paralyzed, wasn't, isn't she, from the neck down. I, with shriveled, bent fingers, atrophied muscles, gnarled knees, and no feeling from the shoulders down, will one day have a new body, light, bright, and clothed in righteousness, powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine, she asks, can you imagine the hope that Christ's resurrection gives someone like me? Well spoken, Johnny. I'm standing here. Can you imagine the hope Christ's resurrection gives someone like me? My sinfulness will give way to perfect righteousness. My emptiness will give way to perfect satisfaction. My brokenness will give way to perfect healing. My sadness will give way to perfect joy. And my loneliness will give way to perfect love. This is a transforming reality that releases us from despondency. One preacher has written, On the day of the Lord, the day that God makes everything right, the day that everything sad comes untrue, you will find that the worst things that have ever happened to you will in the end only enhance your eternal delight. On that day, All of it will be turned inside out and you will know joy beyond the walls of this world. The joy of your glory will be that much greater than every scar you bear. That is why the Apostle Paul is abounding in thankfulness as he languishes in prison. And that, my friend, is why Christ's resurrection as we seek to live in the light of Christ's resurrection, we find a transforming reality which enables us to abound in thanksgiving regardless of the circumstances in which we find ourselves. Yes, a historical fact. Praise the Lord. Christ is risen from the dead. A tremendous theological truth. We know who the Lord Jesus is. The Father has declared it, manifested it, confirmed it by raising Christ from the dead, declaring him indeed to be the Son of God. Yes, a great confessional truth. We know Christ risen from the dead, and the Father has appointed him to act as judge on that day of reckoning yet coming. And yet far above all these, a transforming reality. What it is to be one with Christ in his crucifixion, in his resurrection, in his present reign, and in his promised return. There, my friend, indeed, is all the cause of thanksgiving we require. Oh, may the Spirit of God impress that upon our hearts. May the Spirit of God give us that kind of illumination. 
May the Spirit of God enable us to take to heart what it is to be one with Christ, his beloved Son. Our Father, we make that our prayer this day. As we celebrate Christ's resurrection from the dead, we beseech you. Uh, We ask you to pour out your Spirit upon us, a spirit of wisdom, a spirit of knowledge, a spirit of understanding giving us eyes to behold the glory of the Lord Jesus as revealed in Scripture, eyes to behold our great hope, which is ours in him, and faith to rest upon him, uh, trusting him. We praise you for your great love for your people. We praise you for that great love whereby your son came and gave himself on behalf of sinners. We praise you for your great love whereby now, Through the proclamation of the gospel, you extend to all who will repent of their sin and believe in the Lord Jesus the certainty of sins forgiven and the assurance of life evermore. And so we praise you, our Father, giving you thanks. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.